everybody. It's great to be here. I have not been to the Tabernacle in morning in a lot of years. I don't know the last time I was here. I was trying to think about that. It's been a long time. Uh, so glad to be back. Like Joe said, I'm his son-in-law, his favorite son-in-law, in fact. Uh, so that's always good. His only, if in case you were wondering. Um, but but yeah, very, very glad to, to be able to spend some time with family and come to church here with you all. So um, yeah, if, if you would, wouldn't mind, we'll just pray. I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get into our time in God's Word. We're going to be in Luke 15, so if you have a Bible or, or a device uh, and want to turn there and follow along, you can certainly do that. Um, we'd encourage that. So let's, let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you have given us what you uh, have to say today. Um, Lord, your word is always true, it's always right, it's always timely. And Lord, we just need your help to understand what you want us to, to, uh, to see and, and believe and apply to our lives this morning. And Jesus, I thank you for the great privilege it is to open your, your word for your church. We pray that this service would be glorifying to you and edifying to our hearts as well. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, well, 2020 has been quite the year, huh? Kind of a, kind of, I, I, in my church I say it's, it's a dumpster fire. I mean, that's what we, that's where we're at. We're just, it's crazy, it's crazy, and you know, you got COVID, of course, you've got a uh, political season, which is always crazy, regardless of what's going on. Uh, Kenosha's been through the ringer, so uh, no, no, no question there. Um, but yeah, yeah, we're, so we've been in just a really, really crazy season, and, and, I, and I know you all have been through uh, maybe a little bit more than, than others, just with the pastoral transitions, and uh, it's hard. I've been watching it from a distance because of my connection with the Saligas and, and my love for this church. I have many friends who have been a part of this church, and uh, our hearts, I've, I've spoken to some of them, and just like, we're not, we're not actively a part of the congregation at this point, but we, our hearts just broke for you guys and all of this, and so I, I really just wanted to come and, and um, help encourage your hearts in Jesus. That's really all I'm wanting to do today. I don't have much else of an agenda because I'm a guest speaker, so what I get to do is I get to fly in here, I get to uh, say whatever I need to say, and then Joe has to pick up the problems at the end of it, so it's all good there. No, hopefully that won't be the case, but I just really want to encourage you uh, in Jesus this morning, and, and here's what I want to take us to. I want to take us to Luke 15. Uh, this has been a passage that has just drawn my heart consistently back to one amazing truth, at, at least. I mean, many truths come out of this, but there's one that I really have been clinging to in this season, and that is this, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. I, th I think growing up, having grown up in the church, so I grew up in Round Lake Beach, Illinois, just on the other side of the Wisconsin-Illinois line here, and I grew up on the wrong side of the line. I know, I get that, and I've tried to fix that and correct that in my life here. Um, but growing up, uh, I went to a, a great church uh, in Antioch, uh, Illinois, and I really loved Jesus as a young child, but it wasn't until I was um, more further along or further along in my, in my walk with Christ that I began to really understand 
and want to embrace this truth that Jesus is a friend of sinners. It's just become more and more powerful for me in my heart. I think it really is a truth that sinks down into our sinful hearts and works like an antidote to a poison, a poison called sin. And, and that's what I want to just draw you, you back to today is this beautiful truth of the gospel that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And that comes out so beautifully in this chapter. So let's start by reading just the first couple of verses because I, this is going to be a familiar passage to many of you, maybe most of you. Um, it's, the, it's the passage that contains the, prodigal of the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Right, the parable, you've all heard that parable, I'm sure, or at least some form of it. It's so familiar to us, and yet, um, if we don't read it in the context of the passage, I think we miss the point. And, and so here's the first two verses. This sets up everything for what Jesus is going to say in the parables. He says, now, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all drawing near to hear Jesus. The tax collectors and the sinners, two categories of people who would have been seen as outsiders, not in the uh, higher echelons of of religious culture of Jesus' day. These people would have been living lives externally and internally that do not honor the Lord in any way. And yet here you have these people drawing near to hear Jesus. Now that's something that generally you would hope would be celebrated, right? We want sinners to come to Jesus. We want people, because we're all sinners, right? Every one of us is a sinner, so we all want to come to Jesus and want others to come to Jesus as well. But that's not the response we see in the text. Look at verse 2. It says, And the Pharisees and the scribes, so here's two categories of people that were not tax collectors and sinners. These were people who had their lives put together. They were the PhDs of biblical theology in the ancient world. They understood the Bible, the Bible that they had, the Old Testament. The New Testament was written much later as Jesus lived and died and rose again and his disciples wrote these books. But they knew their Old Testament better than anyone. And these people... The Pharisees and the scribes, here's their response to the sinners and tax collectors coming to see Jesus. It says they grumbled. Grumbled. You guys know what grumbling is, right? It's just, it's not, it's not pleasant to grumble, right? Our, my kids grumble, and it's not pleasant. I don't enjoy it. You, you have the same experience, I'm sure, right? The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, and here's what they grumbled about. Here's what they said as they did this. They said, this man, referring to Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. So what's their complaint? What's their problem? (laughs) Their problem is that this man, Jesus, has these sinners and tax collectors coming to him, and he doesn't push them away. He receives them. And then, not only that, but he eats with them. Now, why is that? even mentioned. What's, what's the big deal about eating with people? Well, in our culture, you know, you can have a casual meal with someone and it's no big deal. No one's going to think twice about it. 
But in that culture, in Jesus' day, if you were to eat with someone, it wasn't uh, a casual thing. It was a sign, an outward display of friendship, of association. So you wouldn't have eaten with someone you didn't want to be associated with. So do you remember the story when Jesus was at a Pharisee's house and the woman who was a sinner came in and started to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and poured perfume on his feet? Do you remember that story? What was the response of the Pharisees there? They freaked out, right? They, They were furious that she came into the house. Why? Because she crashed a dinner party and they didn't want to associate themselves with her. It was a big deal. They didn't want to go anywhere near sinners because that would mean they were friends with them. And and so here's the thing, right? Jesus is embracing these people. He's eating meals with these people. He receives them. And the the Pharisees and the scribes are, are grumbling about this. They're complaining about this. And here's the crazy thing. I love this. Jesus does not in any way um, deny this. He doesn't shrink back from this. He doesn't try to play politics with this. He doesn't have his 12 apostles form a spin room to try to get himself out of this. He embraces it. It's his heart. It's his mission to seek and save the lost. So, so th- then look, look at this, look at this. In the verse, the very next verse, verse 3, in light of the grumbling, here's what he, here's what happens. It says, so he told them this parable. So the, the whole context of what we're going to see this morning is rooted in the grumbling and the complaining about Jesus being a friend of sinners. Jesus tells this parable to the Pharisees and the scribes specifically because they grumbled at him for being a friend of sinners. I think when we understand that, when we get that that's the context, the whole thing just becomes so much more beautiful. So let's look at the parables. There's three. The text here says it's one parable. He told them this parable. I think that's important because even though he technically tells three different stories, they all are pointing to one message. And let's look at it. We'll read verse 4, and we'll just just read for a little bit here and then go. It says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, I think if we were here listening to Jesus, he probably would have put righteous persons in air quotes, okay? Because there is no one righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that in Romans chapter 3 and in the Old Testament 
in this book of Psalms. There is no one righteous, no, not one. So what Jesus is saying is, is that, the, that God rejoices over sinners who repent than 99 self-righteous people who refuse to repent. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Here's the second parable. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 11 says, And then he said to them, Now then he's going to get into the longest of the three stories, the story of what we call the prodigal son. I'm not sure why we call it that exactly. It's not in the biblical text. Um, I, I guess we call it that because the primary focus is of this young man who runs away from home and lives a reckless life. And so he's a prodigal in that sense. But it's really, it, it's bizarre that we've called it that because I think that takes the, the emphasis off of what is really uh, important here. Right? It, it's, it, it's really the same story just with more detail, and one very, very glaring thing that's missing, which I'm going to bring to you in a few minutes here. But let, before we get into the prodigal son um, story, let's, let's first unpack what we're seeing. Let's unpack these first two parables, because these set up the whole stage. And, and there's, a, there's a basic structure here, right? There's, there's the same thing, just repeated two ways with two different examples. The first was a lost sheep. The second was a lost coin. But in each of these stories, you have someone that has something that's gone missing, whether that be the sheep that wanders off or the coin that gets misplaced. You have someone searching for that lost thing. And and even if that means the shepherd leaves 99 sheep in the open field to go find the one that's lost, or the woman that literally turns her house upside down looking for one coin, which most of us would go, well, that's a loss. Let's just deal with it. It'll turn up when we move or something. But this woman turns her whole house upside down to find it. This man leaves everything that is of value to him and and goes to find this one lost sheep. And then, so so there's lost and then there's sought, someone searching for this lost thing. And then when they find it, there's joy. There's a celebration. There's an invitation to come and celebrate. So that's the structure that Jesus sets up. And that's the structure that Jesus is going to expect us to see again in the prodigal son. But here's what's interesting, is that there is similarities, and there are two of the three categories found in this story, but one glaring and missing thing. That, and I think that's the whole point. So let's, let's start looking into it. But before we get there, the whole point of this is to talk about Jesus' depth of friendship with sinners. So as we walk through the parable of the prodigal son, I want to point out, as we read it, uh, uh, various categories of sinners that Jesus befriends. And I hope that as we look at these categories, you'll find yourself in some or all of them. So here we go, verse 11. He said to them, There was a man who had two sons. That's going to come back. That's going to be an important detail. 
But for now, the two sons thing, put, put over to the side. Jesus is going to say this. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. All right, let's understand what's happening here. Because this is um, the first category of sinner that Jesus is telling us he befriends. He's telling us that Jesus loves rejecting sinners. This is what the son is doing to the father. He's rejecting his father. It might not seem like that maybe on its face, but that's what's happening. He, he, this younger brother goes to his living father and says to him, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. What's he asking for? His inheritance. His dad's not dead. Why does he want his inheritance? Because he's rejecting a relationship with his father. Essentially what he's saying to his dad is, you're better to me dead than alive. So why don't you just give me what's mine? Why don't you just give me what's coming to me when you die? Give it to me in advance because I'd rather you be dead than alive. That's literally what would have been seen and understood by Jesus' listeners. That culture, this would have been, um, this actually would have been grounds under the Old Testament law. Thanks, thankfully, we don't live under the Old Testament law. But under the Old Testament law, this would have been grounds for stoning this boy and killing him. So here, this, here he is, he goes to his father and he says, give me the share of property that's coming to me. He's, he completely rejects his father. We see this in our own lives. We see this as we've, um, at times, or before coming to Christ, and even while we're in Christ, we find ourselves at times rejecting God and his will and his desires and and in essence, saying to him, I'd rather live my own life without you in it. And really, when you get down to it, every choice of sin, every decision of sin is a decision to say, I'd rather have my will than yours. So just let me do what I want. That's the kind of sinner that Jesus befriends. Let's, let's look at what happens next. This is what's very amazing. And it says... Uh, that he divided, the father here divided his property between them. That would have been quite scandalous in, in and of itself, but that's another sermon for another day. We, gotta, we can't talk about everything. So um, let's keep reading. In verse 13, it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. All right, so here's the second category of sin that Jesus um, embraces, the kind of sinners he embraces, right? He doesn't embrace sin. I should be careful about that. But he does embrace sinners. And the kind of sinner that he embraces is a wandering sinner. The wandering. The, the, the ones who are going to go off to a far country. He, here, you've got to understand this through the context of a Jewish audience. Um, for someone to leave the land, the promised land, and go to some Gentile nation would, would have been a huge slap in the face to his family. 
and, and a real um, shock to, his, to the people around him. You just didn't do that. See, today, I mean, we, well, not today because of COVID, but normally we could leave the country and go places and do things and get on airplanes and no big deal, right? Like, you can love your, your home, but you can also see the world. That wasn't so much the case in the ancient world, especially not in the Jewish context. And so here he goes, he wanders away from home. He not only leaves his dad's house, he leaves the country. He leaves the whole property and the whole nation behind him and he goes into this far-off country and squanders his property in reckless living. But Jesus loves these kind of sinners, and he welcomes them back, as we'll see. Thirdly, let's look at this, picking it up in verse 14. We'll read it again and into, uh, through 16. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was no longer he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Here's the third category of sinners that Jesus befriends. He befriends suffering sinners. When we hit rock bottom, regardless of what made us hit rock bottom, like we, we understand, like, okay, you can hit rock bottom if something, you know, outside your control happens. We always have grace for that. But what if you hit rock bottom and it's your own fault? Is there grace for that too? Yeah, there is. It's there at rock bottom that Jesus meets us. He loves suffering sinners. And even if they're suffering because of their own stupidity, let's be honest. Those are the only kind of sinners there are, (laughs) really, right? People who've done it to themselves. Jesus doesn't make us do these things. So when we hit rock bottom, that's where Jesus meets us. Let's keep reading. Uh, well, we've got to kind of go quickly through the rest of this and get to the end because there's one more category of, self-righteous, uh, of sinners rather that, are, that we've got to talk about. And, um, and so we'll get through it. Here, here's what it says. Verse 17, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring in his hand, on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So here's that turning point in the story where this where the son goes home 
and is welcomed home regardless of all the mistakes he had made, regardless of all the sinful problems he endured, the father welcomed him home and didn't let him finish his I'm sorry speech, which if you remember his I'm sorry speech was, okay, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And the father cuts him off before he can ask to be a hired servant. He, he lets him get as far as, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Okay, let's have a party now. You're, you're back in. Amazing. Now, here's the thing. That's not where the story ends. It's where you would expect it to end based off of the first two parables, right? The first two parables are sheep disappears, shepherd goes and finds it, finds it, calls his friends, they have a party. But this one doesn't end there. Look at verse 25. This is where that second son comes in. Remember, there were two sons. Now his older son was in the field, in verse 25. And he came and he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. That's a party right there. If you can hear the dancing, that's a party right there. Um, And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So again, okay, this should be be leading to something good here. But look what, what happens. Verse 28, it says, but he was angry and refused to go in. He was angry and refused to go in. Now look at this grace that comes next. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here's what's amazing in this. Jesus is using this parable as a rebuke to the Pharisees and the scribes because they didn't understand the heart of God as a friend of sinners in Jesus. And so here he brings them into the story and says to to them essentially, listen, you're welcome to join the party. You're not excluded. There is one more category of sinner that Jesus loves, and this is important for us, especially those of us who have been Christians a long time. Loves self-righteous sinners. Jesus loves people who think they don't need him and think they're good without him. And a lot of us are going to struggle with this because a lot of us have our lives, at least externally, put together. But what that creates is a dependency on self and not on Christ. 
So it's important to notice that even this older, self-righteous brother who's grumbling about the party that his brother, who, by the way, had been missing and gone and didn't seem to have any care about at all, is welcomed home, the father comes out to him as well and entreats him to join the party. He is welcomed into friendship with Jesus. So here's here's what we need to hear. There's good news for all of us. All of us. Jesus welcomes all kinds of sinners. But here's the question we need to ask based off these parables. The question is, is how do we get from just being sinners to being repentant and restored to friendship with Jesus? And see, this is where we can lose sight of something. When we, when we get to this third parable, we lose sight of the formula that Jesus has already established in the first two. We can lose sight of what he's trying to say to us. See, because in the parable of the prodigal son, the, the younger son does come home, right? He, it says in verse uh, 17, he came to himself. He came to the conclusion as he's sitting in the pig pen trying to eat pig food just to have something to eat, he realizes, wow, this is not great. My father's servants have more than enough food to eat. What am I doing here? And he gets up and goes. And because that happens in the story, I think we've, we lose sight of the, the fact that that is not the intention of Jesus at all. The intention for Jesus was for someone to go and find That's what he set up in, these, in this parable, the first two. And you notice the glaring problem in the third of these three parables. The glaring problem is no one searches for the son. No one goes in search of him. There's... There's there's a shepherd that leaves 99 sheep in the open field to go find one that was lost. And here's what's interesting. Jesus asked the question in verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country, go after the one that's lost until he finds it? The answer to that question would be, no one does that. Who would do that? That's a terrible business strategy. That's a terrible business strategy to leave the 99 that you have healthy and safe and you're going to abandon them in the open country for wolves to eat while you go find one. The math doesn't work there. And that's, that's kind of the point. The point is that none of them would do this, but God does. Um, so so in, this, in this third parable, we see there's this glaring problem that nobody goes in search of the boy. And, but here's the thing. As you read the story, as you read it, it starts with there was a man who had two sons. So the younger goes off. What are we to expect? We're to expect the older son to leave and find his brother and bring him back. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. See, we, we need someone to rescue us. We need a rescuer. We need someone to f- seek us out and find us. And that's why Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees because they are rebuking or grumbling against the one who came into the world to do that very thing, 
to seek and save the lost. And, and as the leaders of the nation, the Pharisees and the scribes, should have been in about the business of helping the lost be found. But they weren't about that work. And in fact, the Old Testament tells us this very thing. I want to take you, um, we're going to go jump around a little bit here, but first we're going to skip back to Ezekiel 34 for a few minutes. Ezekiel 34 talks about something that's, I think, really, really relevant to the passage we're looking at. Here's the context of Ezekiel 34. God is going to speak against the shepherds of Israel. So again, not like people who are taking care of sheep, but the leaders, the people who are meant to shepherd the congregation of God in the Old Testament. And and here's what it says, starting in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, And here's God's word. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should you not shepherd? Should not the shepherd? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. Skip down to verse 7. It says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because uh, my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And this is where things get really glorious. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep I have been, uh, that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall their grazing lands be. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. He says, I myself will shepherd my sheep. I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. You see, Jesus loves these people. He loves 
rejecting sinners. He loves wandering sinners. He loves suffering sinners. He goes after these people. He pursues them. He strengthens the weak. The fat ones I will, I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. But this is, the, this is the beautiful thing of this Old Testament prophecy. It promises that God himself will be the rescuer that his people need. And that is exactly who Jesus is. If you look at the Gospel of John, we'll look at John chapter 10. This is where it becomes extremely clear, right? If you're familiar with this passage at all, it says, um, he, he says, let's see where I can pick it up here. Verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. See, Jesus is not a shepherd like the shepherds of Israel. He didn't use the sheep for, their own gain, for his own gain. Instead, he lays down his life for his sheep. And in case you're confused or not sure if we apply to this, Verse 16 says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. So you may not be part of the people of Israel in a, in a uh, genetic sense, but we're all included in this. Jesus has brought together his people. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. We're all in. We're all in through Jesus. I think we really need to soak this truth into our hearts today. That Jesus is a friend of sinners. And that's wonderful news because I'm a sinner. And I need Jesus to befriend me. See, the way that we get back to God, to stop living sinful lives and to start living repentant lives, is that the shepherd of the sheep comes in pursuit of his lost ones and he finds us and he brings us home. He binds up our wounds. He, he heals us and he restores us to what we were meant to be. That's how it happens. And the, and the people that were listening to Jesus tell this parable in Luke 15 needed to understand that that they were not the ones to save their people. Jesus was. And their whole attitude towards him, befriending sinners, was completely outside of the heart of God. He, he makes that point really clear. And there's so much more we could talk about here. I mean, there's so much. But I just want us to marvel in Jesus today, that he would be a friend of me and you, that he would be willing to befriend us in all of our messiness and all of our brokenness. We need to be careful not to assume that, that Jesus is only going to befriend us when we get our life together, though. You, you, know, you know that that's not the point of the parable. We're not restored to Jesus when we fix ourselves. We're restored to Jesus when we come to him. We just come to him with all of our brokenness and all of our mess and all of it we bring to him. And I, there's, a couple, there's a couple quotes I want to close us out with. One from a pastor named Ray Ortland. He pastors Emmanuel Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and he wrote a book 
called The Gospel, How the Church Displays the Beauty of Christ. It's one of the most helpful books I've ever read um, in, in helping me understand how the church should function in light of what Jesus has done for us. Um, but, but here's one thing he says. I love it. There's just a, a sentence. He says, Jesus Christ loves you. Not the rehabilitated you, but the real you. The one down in the abyss. And he welcomes you to himself. That's, that's life-changing. And then we can kick it back to, to the 1800s with Charles Spurgeon. You guys are Baptist church, right? You're a Baptist church. Spurgeon was the Baptist king of preachers, or whatever they called him, prince of preachers. He, he had one of the world's largest churches in London in the 1800s. And here's what he says at one, in one of his sermons. He says, The gate of mercy is opened, and over the door it is written, It is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then he says this, between the word save and the next word sinners, there is no adjective. It doesn't say penitent sinners, awakened sinners, sensible sinners, grieving sinners, or alarmed sinners. No, it only says sinners. And he says, I know when I come to Christ today, I dare not come as a conscious sinner or an awakened sinner, but I come still as a sinner with nothing in my hands. That's the response we ought to have today, to just come to Jesus as sinners, knowing that we won't be rebuked or turned aside or kicked out but embraced and loved and received because it is Jesus' heart to eat and drink and fellowship and love and befriend sinners. Let's be thankful in Jesus for all of that. That's just where my heart's at right now, and I I hope that encourages you this morning. I, I know that when you go through hard things, it's so difficult to keep our eyes on the center, but the center is Jesus and what he's done for us. We need to keep our eyes firmly fixed on him, that he loves us right where we are, and he will work to change us. But there is no prerequisite to be changed. We just come to him as sinners, and he does his work. So let's, let's pray. I hope you would come to him today in, in whatever way that, that looks, but let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are a friend of sinners. We thank you, God, that you have loved us, that you have sought us, that you have found us and restored us. We pray, God, that you would use uh, the word that you've given us today through Luke and and, uh, other places in the scriptures to just draw our hearts back to who you are and what you've done. And we thank you, Jesus, that you would take a bunch of raggedy old messed up people like us and you would make us yours. We pray that would be our heart today and that we'd focus on that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Bless you.